0: for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is Luke 22 verses 31 to 38. Luke 22:31 to38. Simon Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray one more time. Father, thank you again for this time, Lord, the time we've already had. What a joy it was to hear voices raised praising you, for you are praiseworthy. And now, Lord, we come to you as children. Would you open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Seeking to avoid war with Germany, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain had a policy of appeasement. And that meant, let Hitler expand, let him gain territory unchecked. In 1936 he entered the Rhineland. In 1938 he annexed Austria and later that year Chamberlain signed the Munich Agreement which allowed Germany to occupy the German portion of Czechoslovakia and later they expanded and took over the whole country. In 1939 Germany invaded Poland and because of a treaty that England had with Poland they were forced to enter the war at that time. 70 to 85 million people were killed as a result of World War II. One of the greatest tragedies in human history, and this all could have been avoided. You see, a decade before World War II broke out, Winston Churchill saw that war was coming. He saw it. He knew it was coming. He understood who Hitler was. And in 1934, he gave a speech, and he said that this one-sided pacifism will not make war less likely, quote, but would have the opposite effect. He begged people to listen, but he was marginalized and remained unheard. Millions of people would have been saved if they had only heeded what Winston Churchill had been saying all along. Now, we are currently at war, and the stakes are much higher than the stakes leading up to World War II. And Jesus issues a warning, will you listen? Will I listen? The big idea of our passage today is that we must actively engage in this battle. And we need to do it now. We can't put it off. We must engage. And there's two points, two battle fronts, occurring simultaneously. The battle within, and that's for our souls, our very souls, and then the battle without, and that's for the souls of others. So there's two fronts. Point number one, the battle within. Point number two, the battle without. We'll take a little more time on the battle within, so when I get to the end of that, don't panic. It'll be the majority of our time together. But the battle within, in the battle within, we have two enemies. Enemy number one, Satan. Look with me at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. This idea of Satan walking up to God and making any kind of demands is absurd on its, on its face. So don't think of Satan as having any kind of ground before the Lord. But this idea of him demanding, really, let me paraphrase it for you, pleading with every fiber of his being. Satan is pleading with every fiber of his being. Let me have him. He's not content to simply hurl insults at us. He's determined to do everything he possibly can to destroy our faith. And he will stop at nothing. He will do everything he can to destroy our faith. So, what do we know about Satan from this text? We know that he's ind- he's determined. He is determined. But we also know that he is indiscriminate. Look with me again at verse thirty-one. Satan, or Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, Jesus is talking to Peter. But that you is plural. And so so what he's saying is this. Here's Peter and here's the disciples all around him and he's saying Satan has demanded to have each of you, to sift each of you like wheat. If you have a pulse, he's coming after you. He went after Jesus in Luke 4. He was in the wilderness and he tempted him and tempted him and tempted him and Jesus defeated him in every temptation. And you would think he would give up. But the Bible says he left, he departed until an opportune time. So even with Jesus himself, he was tempting and seeking an opportune time. Later in this chapter, we have him going after Judas. Well, Judas is the bottom tier of the disciples. And yet he goes after Judas and, and wins and defeats. And then right now... We have him going after Peter, and Peter's at the top tier of the disciples, and he's gone after him. Do you see that scripture goes to great lengths to show us that he is coming after us? He is after us. Everybody, high, low, Jesus himself. Make no mistake, Satan is indiscriminate in his tempting, Satan is evil. Look with me again at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That is a violent process. Sift us like wheat. He wants to shake our faith our faith, so violently that it would give way. It would crumble and be blown away by the wind. That's his goal, to sift us like wheat. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is seeking to kill, steal and destroy. And Satan is a strategist. The timing of his attack, his attacks, are carefully thought out. Think about Jesus. Jesus, John the Baptist had just announced, Behold the, Son of, the Lamb of God. And he's, he's pointing at Jesus. This is a high mark in Jesus' ministry. And then the Holy Spirit descends and lands on his shoulder. The Holy Spirit. And then the Father's voice says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It couldn't have been a higher time in Jesus' life and ministry. And yet Satan comes at that moment. Peter, he's just had this dinner party with Jesus. Jesus himself has washed his feet. And Jesus said these words, you 12 will eat and drink in the coming kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Couldn't be a higher moment for Peter. Satan knows when Peter would be most vulnerable. And he comes to him at that precise moment. Satan is a strategist. The battle within, we have two enemies. Enemy number one is Satan. And as bad as that seems, enemy number two is actually an even greater enemy and far more subtle. And that's spiritual pride. Jonathan Edwards said in the paper he wrote, Undiscerned spiritual pride. The first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. In other words, until spiritual pride is dealt with, don't count on grace to help in any other area of your life. Look with me at verses 33 and 34. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Peter's attitude, and we see it elsewhere, was this. Lord, even if all, you see those other disciples of yours? Even if they fall away, not me. I'm better than that. Even if they fall away because of you, I will never fall away, even if I'm put to death. If you are here, and you feel spiritually superior to those around you, you are in grave danger. The gravest of dangers. It's often the thing that turns people off against the church because the church, unfortunately, is often filled with spiritually proud people. Let that not be the case here. Therefore, if let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, that's what the Bible says. Paul understood this. Paul. In 54 A.D., uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, he said this, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. You see, he got this. He's not saying, Lord, even if they do it, I won't. He's saying, man, I'm at the bottom. And then eight years later, eight years of maturity under his belt, he writes to the Ephesians, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. He goes from... I'm I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle to, to, you know, I'm at the bottom tier of all Christians throughout the world. And then at the end of his life in the mid-60s A.D., to Timothy, he said this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the utmost. From the apostles, bottom. All the saints, bottom. All sinners, I am the foremost. See, he understood. He understood something about the danger that we are in and that we are far worse off than we realize. And it's but by the grace of God. You know, it's said that William Bradford once said, I can't, I can't find, I, I, don't think, I don't know that he actually said this, but it's, 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 he's given credit for it. But years ago, he saw someone being dragged off to be hung for their crimes, serious crimes crimes. And his attitude was this, but for the grace of God, there go I. Do you know that every good thing in your life, every good characteristic, every good motive is but for the grace. Of, that's the grace of God. It's not you, it's God. If God left us to ourselves, we would destroy one another utterly. One commentator I read said this, I'm the scariest person on the planet because I am the biggest danger to myself. Do you believe that? There's a devil and he's a danger, but we are the biggest dangers to ourselves. In the battle within, we have two enemies Satan and spiritual pride but there is a profound encouragement right in the middle of these two enemies. And the encouragement is this, Jesus. And every kid here would know this. What is the encouragement? What is the answer? Jesus. Now, in times of sifting in my life and in your life, I'm sure you want want Jesus to step in. I want Jesus to step in, and I want him to step in with Satan crushing miracles. I want him to come in and part the Red Sea, calm the the storm. I want him to come in and raise the dead. I want him to come in like that. But he doesn't come in like that. How does he come in? He comes in like this, Look look with me at verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers i want him to come in and crush and make my life comfortable but what does he say i've prayed for you that your faith may not fail now in verse 31 the the you is plural satan demanded to have each of you to sift each of you like wheat but here in verse 32 it's singular In other words this is not some sort of blanket prayer covering all of us this is intensely personal he's speaking to peter now and he says i have prayed for you that your faith would not fail and at the same time this isn't just for for peter and we know it because in romans chapter 8 it says who is to condemn christ jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, plural. Hebrews 7 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's not reluctantly praying for us. He lives to make intercession for us. But what is he praying for? What is he praying for? He's not praying for our comfort. Do you see that here? Oh, we want him to pray for our comfort. I hate to be uncomfortable. I want God to fix my circumstances desperately, and that's often how I pray. But that's not what he prays for. He prays for one thing and one thing alone. Not a relational health, physical health, Not comfort, not a hedge of protection. He prays that our faith would not fail. Through the sifting, through the fires of life, non-failing faith becomes stronger. He prays that our faith would not fail. That idea of fail there is, is to run out or die out to collapse into nothingness. He is earnestly praying that our faith would not collapse into nothingness. And notice how confident his prayer is. Peter hasn't been sifted yet. It's about to happen in in an hour or so, a couple of hours. And yet he says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He's prayed, but he knows that Peter will stand because he's praying. There's no question in his mind. He's not, man, Peter, I sure hope you make it. He's, he's Peter. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. What good news this is. He could say, when you return, you're disqualified, and you're back down at the bottom, and you're going to have to work your way back up. But he says, when you return, you're going to be a force for good, and you're going to be used to strengthen the body of Christ. It's incredible. You're going to mess up big time and your faith will be battered and bruised, but it will emerge as a repentant faith. The battle within is a battle for our very souls. The solution, Jesus himself is praying for us. We are weak. Do you feel your weakness? If you are here this morning and you feel like maybe you don't belong, you're too weak, then your spirit is exactly the kind of spirit that God is going to bless. We are weak, but when we are weak, he is strong. It's war. There are two fronts, the battle within and the battle without. And by the way, for this battle within, know this. That our God is the one who said, no one can snatch you out of my hands. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So we can battle with confidence, knowing that he's praying for us and knowing that he will not lose one of his. It's war. There's two fronts, the battle within and the battle without. Look with me at verse 35 through 36. This is point number two. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Let me paraphrase this. Hey, remember when you went out before? First the 12 of you And then the 72 of you, do you remember how awesome it was? People provided for all your needs, even feeding you and housing you. It's going to be different now. It's going to be a lot harder. It's not going to be like that anymore. You will experience stiff opposition. Now, he's not saying this. It's going to be tough now, so you're going to have to bring a sword and hold it to their throats and make them believe. Okay, He's not saying that. He's not saying this. Things are going to get really tough, so you better accumulate weapons and establish an arsenal in your basement for the days ahead. He's not saying that. I think it's okay to buy guns. But he's not telling us Accumulate weapons because the enemy is getting strong and you need to kill him. This is what he's saying. The context here is sharing the good news of the gospel, unquestionably. And Jesus is speaking metaphorically about accumulating weapons. And I'm not saying I think that, I'm telling you that. He is speaking metaphorically. Now how do we know that? We know that because moments later when the greatest injustice came, just a couple hours later, his own betrayal with a kiss. If there was ever a time to resort to violence, it would be right then and there. And Peter, misunderstanding him, pulls out a sword and starts swinging it. That's a later sermon. And what does Jesus say? Put the sword away. Put it away. That's not what this is about. Also, you remember right there when the disciples in this text said, because they're listening to all of this, and and he says, you know, sell your cloak and get a sword, and the disciples are right there, and and then they say, Lord, here are two swords. He didn't say, there's 11 of you. What are you going to do with two swords? That's not going to help you at all. But he said, it's enough. It's enough. And, and I'll tell you, what he's saying is enough of this kind of talk. Because right after he says that, he then goes into the gospel, which we'll get to next. And then the disciples say, Lord, here's two swords. They missed the whole point. And so Jesus says, enough of this talk. You guys are talking about physical swords. That's not at all what I have in mind. Also, one more thing, and there's more. But all of his disciples were mistreated, and most of them were martyred. And yet, none of them resorted to physical violence. He is not talking about weapons, physical weapons. In Acts 4, we see this played out. See, they understood it. In Acts 4, Peter and John go before the the rulers. And I've never seen a stack-up like this. I I just noticed it this week. But it says, who was up against Peter and John? There's never a list like this in the entire New Testament. It says, the rulers, the elders, and scribes, with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Every enemy to the cross in the Jewish faith was there. So he stacks it up. Man, here's Peter and John. They're sharing the gospel. Here's all these enemies, and they are trying to stop them. And what happens? They only have two swords among them. Guess what? Those those swords are probably long gone by now. He says, they, they, they tell him, do not preach anymore in his name. And they go back. And when all the disciples were gathered together, what did they do? They prayed, and they said, Oh, sovereign Lord, you are high and exalted, and you predicted this was going to happen, that everybody was going to gather against, and everybody was going to oppose. The kings and queens and all the people, I I don't think he mentions queens, but, um, but all these people are going to oppose what's happening. And then they say, God, grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand. If there was ever a time to pull out the swords, it would have been then. But the disciples understood what Jesus was talking about. The sword they have is the gospel. And they're praying, not for comfort, not for protection even. They're not saying, oh, God, don't let us go into prison. The work will be shut down. They're just saying, God, just keep giving us boldness, and whatever comes, comes. We'll face it. Jesus is talking about a mindset. A German theologian, I can't pronounce his name, said this. In time of war, a warrior will give everything he has for the weapon that he needs in order to be able to fight, even the shirt off his back. In this war, we must arm ourselves with this same mentality. 2 Corinthians 10 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments with every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Ephesians 6, talking about this war, talks about the armor that we need. And everything's defensive, and it finally gets to the offensive. And it says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You want to be armed with the sword that Jesus is talking about? Know your Bibles. Study them. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. That's the sword. It's the Word of God. But if you are spending more time... Building an arsenal to protect you from hostile neighbors and equipping yourself. If you're, if, you're doing, if you're spending more time doing that than equipping yourself to share the gospel with them, then you have missed the thrust of this passage. Now, I am for, I own a gun. I think it's great to own. But it's a mentality. Where is your hope? Is it in yourself? Or is it in Jesus Christ? Where's your... Tr- Your weapons, what are they? Are they physical weapons or spiritual weapons? There's a shift taking place right now. And Jesus is praying that your faith will stand. Will you rely on yourself putting your faith in other things? Or will you put your faith in Jesus? Where are you putting your faith? It's war, and there are two fronts, the battle within and the battle without. The first battle is a battle for our souls, and the second battle is a battle for the souls of others. Next, our last point. This one's very short, although it's the most important thing I will ever say here today. The gospel. Jesus hasn't even died yet. But there he is. And you know what he does? He quotes right here in verse 37 something that was prophesied 700 years before. But here he is, and it's about to happen in the next couple of hours, in the next minutes. What was said was going to happen 700 years ago is happening. And he says this, For I tell you, in verse 37, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what was written about me has its fulfillment. Now is the time. It's fulfilled. What, 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 did, he, what did he say? See, this was in Isaiah 53. And, and so many of us are familiar with this, but I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read parts of it. And, and he's pointing right there. Remember, 700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah wrote this down. He, and let me just quote the last verse, the last half of the last verse. But here's what he said. Here's what Isaiah said Jesus, well, this future Messiah, which we know as Jesus, was despised and rejected. Oh, yeah. Did I read it? Let's read it. Verse 37, for I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what was written about me has its fulfillment. Isaiah 53, Jesus was despised and rejected by men. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He could have called down the armies from heaven. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. 700 years before Jesus is just living out what had been prophesied about him years before. We have two simple yet profound applications. Reflection and prayer. It is true that if you are a Christian, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Isn't that a wonderful truth? If you are here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you could not be more secure than you are right now, regardless of what the future may bring. But reflect on the fact that this is only true because Jesus died in our place and he is now interceding. Oftentimes we forget about this ministry. It's part of the gospel. He died, he rose again. And He is now interceding for us. In fact, you could say in His earthly existence, He spends the most time doing this. He was born. He spent 33 years with us, three years of ministry, one week of intense suffering, and then death on the cross, rose again. He's been praying for 2,000 years, 24-7, and He's not going to give up. Reflect on that and just relish it. Praise God that he would pray for us, but for his prayers, not one of us would stand. Thank you, God. He died for our sins, for our salvation. He prays for our continuing in the faith. So here's, here's our application here. We should pray as well. And God help us to spend less time praying about secondary things. The Bible does say, cast all your cares on him. He's the kind of God that we can come before him with everything. But sometimes we get so distracted with secondary things, we don't pray about primary things. We pray about things that lead to comfort. We pray about protection for financial security, for health. And oftentimes these prayers reflect the very idols of our heart. But that's not Jesus. Jesus prayed for protection against unbelief. Do you pray that way? I beg of you, and and me too. Let's pray like never before that God would protect our faith. Don't just assume that. Don't don't just assume that you're strong enough, you're great enough. Pray for protection against unbelief. And and I'm not just adding that on to this. Jesus, this is what he's taught his disciples all along. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He's instructing us. We should pray this way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Later, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. In fact, this is going to happen in about a half an hour. He's going to go to the garden and he's going to pray and he's going to turn to his disciples. He's going to bring Peter, James, and John with him a a few steps further and he's going to say, pray, and then he's going to go off and he's going to pray for an hour pleading. And then he's going to come back and they're sound asleep. And he says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation he does this twice. The third time, he doesn't even bother. Are you praying this way? What do you pray for? Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Satan is after us, and he will never let up. The Bible says, resist him, and he will flee from you. There are those moments where he flees, but pray, pray, pray. So the battle within... The battle for our own souls. Jesus prays, we must pray. The battle without. Remember Jesus looked out at the fields with his disciples and he said, Look, he saw the people there were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the fields. Are you praying that way? Let's pray that way. Surely not enough. But God help us to pray about what matters most to Him. And that is that more and more people come to know Him. It's the whole reason He hasn't come yet. The Bible says He's not not slow concerning His promise to return, as some count slowness. But He is patient, not willing that any should suffer. He cares. Do you care? Do I care? If we really do, it'll be reflected in our prayers. Imagine if we were a church of people who prayed earnestly every day for protection from the evil one, and if we prayed earnestly every day as one voice for God to send out laborers into the field, if we prayed, Lord, give me opportunity, boldness, clarity of speech, imagine what would happen. Let's be that church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for instructing us. And Lord, thank you for never giving up. Thank you that our time to come to you is our time of weakness. Your arms are open wide. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, help them to come to you. Rescue them from the clutches of Satan himself. Deliver them into the kingdom of love. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, God, would you eradicate the spiritual pride which exists in each of our hearts. And Lord, would you give us a deep humility, eyes that don't look to ourselves, but look to Christ. For you say, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.